Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. As you're turning there, I want to make this statement. We believe in the virgin birth, as well as the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he was God in the flesh. That is a statement of faith. That is a biblical doctrine that is taught. That's a statement of fact uh, that is taught in the word of God. That truth is undeniable and negotiable. Uh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And there's no poetry that you can spin, but it is a, a doctrine which we must receive. It is an essential doctrine which we must receive by faith. To receive Christ as Savior is to also receive that he is God. Uh, to receive Christ as Savior, you believe the record which is written of Christ. And the record also teaches us that Christ was God and flesh. So Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Look at uh, Luke chapter 1. So we see the truth that a virgin will conceive and the baby that is born from the virgin, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's a prophecy some seven year, 700 years before Jesus was born by Isaiah. And now let's look in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. One, uh, look at verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? It is of scriptural fact. It's black and white. Uh, you either believe it or you don't believe it. It doesn't really matter if we understand it or not. But the scriptures say that Jesus' father was not human. It was the Holy Ghost. And it says in verse 35, the angel told her that the Holy Ghost would come upon her and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the scriptures teach plainly that Jesus was virgin born, that his father is God the Father, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who had come upon Mary and she conceived Jesus supernaturally. It's a miracle. Uh, he was a miracle born child. So we're going to see here in a minute the necessity of that. Why was this necessary? But we're going to keep talking for now about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to define this a couple times. Now, Right now we're talking about the fact of the incarnation as a Sunday school lesson, as a Baptist or a Bible principle class. This is a class. Later on we're going to talk about the glory of the incarnation in uh, John. John brings out the glory of it, just the beauty and the glory and all that it means. But here uh, we simply define the incarnation as God has taken on flesh. It the divine has taken on the human. It's not the other way around. Human does not take on the divine. Right. 
God was already divine. God was already God. He was not human, and then he became human. And so he's both all God, all man at the same time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that doctrine. It's going to hurt our heads a little bit this morning. Um, but again, it's not, faith is not based on a rationale or a foundation of logic. It's based on the claims of Jesus Christ, his promises, his claims of who he was, and uh, the fact that he has come to save sinners and what he did to do that. Um, based, not, based on the rationale of things. So the fact that Jesus was all God and all man, uh, it doesn't compute. It, our minds can't take all that in. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Jesus was, or men are born, Jesus was incarnated. Okay? Men are not incarnated. We're born. We come into existence. God was already in existence before his birth. So he was incarnated. He took on flesh. And that's where people get reincarnation. Because we've already been born, we're all, we already exist. When we die, we become reincarnated. We're, we'll talk about some of the false views of these other world religions and everything. But that's where they get reincarnation. But men are born, men die. Jesus was incarnated. And that's what that means. He took on human flesh. And really, it stops there. Um, we, I don't know how many of y'all have heard about the, hypostat or the hypostatic union um, or hypostatic union. It's a $5 word. <laughs> all that means is Jesus is both two natures. He's all man and all God. And how they, he, they both existed within one person. Uh, the, he wasn't half man and half God. He was all man and all God. Uh, the one did not dilute the other. They were not mixed together. He was in a perfect state of being both of these things. There was nothing you could say about God that you couldn't say about Jesus. And there's nothing you can say about man that you could not say about Jesus, except that he had no sin. He was all things. Now, he did lay aside his glory. He did lay aside the powers that he had and the, the ability of the attributes of God, which he could have demonstrated. He laid it aside. He took the subjective role. He took this, the role of a servant. He took the role of a, he had to learn obedience. He prayed. He taught us how to pray. He taught us how to have faith in God. He taught us how to make it God's will, not our will. And so he took on that role himself, but he was always God. At no point was Jesus not God. And actually, um, I'm always careful about uh, citing decrees from the councils of Ephesus or the councils of, um, I don't know how to say this word right, uh, I want to say Chalcedon, I think it is Chalcedon. Uh, these were Catholic type of decrees. Uh, we know that they have a wrong view of Mary, but their view of the deity and the, the uh, hypostatic union is right on. Uh, it is. The, their, their view of Jesus being all man and all God, just this one little slither, if, you know. You can find slithers to agree with, even in the weirdest of things, but for the most part, they're, they're not correct. Um, and 
their decree was they explained the hypostatic union, the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ existing in the same person, neither, no confusion, no mixture, none of the things, none of those two natures uh, blended in or contradicted or confused or they were both in perfect harmony. Um, now, the incarnation is God taking on flesh and the hypostatic union or the union of the divine nature and the human nature is that sometimes we'll include it with the incarnation because it is. God never stopped being God. And actually, Mary was called the God-bearer. Now, some would say, uh, you call Mary the mother of God, which is right. We call Mary the mother of God, but some people might get confused with that. If you just say that on the street and have no background or context, they may, say that they may think that you're saying that God had a beginning and, mother was the, and mother was the, Mary was the mother. Um, we'll get more into what the Mormons believe, but they believe in a heavenly mother and a heavenly father had Jesus. Um, so it's more appropriate and it leaves the confusion out of it when you say Mary was a God-bearer, Theokotos. And that's what that means, Theokotos. And that's where one, that term came out of one of those councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. Now, I mean, I can agree with that statement, but I disagree with how they applied their statements. They applied their statements to be laws in the state. You know, I, I can disagree with what the Catholic Church did with these. I mean, they made them law. <laughs> and so uh, you were punishable by law if you didn't submit to what their decrees were. Well, I completely disagree with that. But as far as the when they came out with this hypostatic union, that, that is completely, if you look it up, Google it, uh, it it's right on. It's the, the, the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ existing in one person. And um, it's more, it, it, you can't understand it. It's one of those things, most of the time, it's better for us to define that by what it's not versus what it is, because our minds cannot reach what it is. We just know what it's not. We know it's not a mixture. We know it's not like a, a Greek mythology type of Hercules person that's half God, half man. No, God, uh, Jesus was all God, all man. Uh, Mary was bearing God. He was all God. He never stopped being God. And the Mormons will teach that Jesus was born a man. They believe God was born a man. And then God progressed to Godhead. And that's what the Mormons believe happened. I didn't want to get in this right away, but they actually celebrate the fall of Adam. And you know why? Because that gave man to be a chance to be mortal. And they say, oh, because man is mortal now, we can progress into Godhood. They believe that they are progressing into Godhood. And it's just like, what? I mean, you're talking about cultic, you're talking about out there, total alienation, and what drug were you on? When, when I mean, what kind of peyote buttons were, were they taking? Or 
smoking peace pipes when they came up with this. I, I don't want to be derogatory or negative, but when it comes to that, Jesus is very cut and dry about false religion. You know, I, I will love you if sin has swept you up, and I will, I will be the person you need. But when it comes to teaching false doctrine and leading people astray and, and coming up with a religion and a system that's all based on selfishness and just imagination, that, that's where we have to call that out. Amen. We have to. Because that's not, you're confusing, you're diluting the waters. You're confusing the whole council. Um, now, God, we know, will save his own. But isn't it interesting since, now we're what, 2,000 years since Christ? And in these 2,000 years, have you noticed how saturated the, the, the gospel is? Almost to the point where now it is just a cliche. It's no longer a proclamation like John the Baptist was heralding the coming of the Messiah. Now it, it's more a cliche, and now everybody just sweeps it under their feet as if it's a... They believe it is something that the old people held on to, and it's antiquated, and it's racist, and it's prejudices, and, and everything. And, um, but that is, shouldn't surprise us. That's the way the lost have always, have always been. Um, they do not want, the lost do not want challenged to who they are, no matter what form it comes in. But the incarnation is a fact of scriptures. Philippians 2.6 says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. All right, so here's a few reasons it was necessary for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. First, it was necessary that Jesus should take on human flesh. It was necessary that God should take on human flesh. Now remember why he did it. He did it for the reconciliation of sinners. He did a work of reconciling us to him because we could do no works to reconcile ourselves to him. God had to plan and take the action upon us to bring us to him. Uh, you know, none of us were seeking God. All of us were seeking our own thing, our own way. Um, that's what Adam and Eve were tempted by. Uh, Satan says, you know what? God wants to tell you what to do, but don't you just want to do what you want to do? Don't, don't you want to be the center of your universe? Don't, don't you want your will? You want to be a God. And that's what sin is. Think about this. Sin is competition against God for sovereignty. That's what sin is. You want to do what you want to do. You want your will to be done. You want to be God. You want to call your own shots. And that is at the root of idolatry. That's the root of idolatry. So when we see that this happens and God has cast them out, they're rebels. God has cast out the rebels. But in God's saving and loving and merciful purpose, he, he purposed to save some. And how could he do that? He can only do that by acting upon us. By God himself becoming human. That's the incarnation. So first, he had to become human because he had to suffer as a human. 
He had to suffer under the curse of the fall, even though he had no sin. He had to suffer bodily, not only so that he could be our faithful and high priest and be acquainted with our grief, acquainted with our sorrow. He relates to us. But Jesus had to be a man as our high priest because that was the requirement of a high priest. The high priest, in order for man to be represented to God, had to be represented by a human mediator, a man. And that's what Aaron was. He was a man. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 5. And I love how Hebrews, the first five chapters of Hebrews, is integrating with our topics today. And uh, we'll bring that out a lot more. But so that that is the first reason is he had to have a body to enwrath the word of wrath. Uh, I'm sorry. He had to have a body to endure the wrath of God as our substitute. He had to have a body to be tempted like we are as all points, but without sin. He had to have a body to be our faithful and high priest. The priest had to be human. He had to have a body so that he could fulfill the law. Jesus was made under the law, and he fulfilled all the law so that he could perfect righteousness. So Jesus has become our righteousness. He has become the Adam that we could not be. He has become the, the one who obeyed the law that we could not. So he became our innocent. He became the just. God had always slain the just for the unjust, always the innocent for the guilty, and always through the sacrificial system, all throughout. And so that is why Jesus had to, as God, take on human flesh so that he could obey the law being a man, come under the same commandments as, as us, but he obeyed them so that way he could impute righteousness. Once he fulfilled all the law, in the Sermon of the Mount, uh, Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now how? That's impossible. How would you do that? Well, you can only do that with the applied righteousness of Jesus Christ. You cannot be perfect by keeping the law that God's given you, the Ten Commandments. You just can't do it. None of us can. But that's what's required. That's what Jesus says. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, that's a tall order. The Pharisees uh, were very self-righteous, very committed and memorized. The Pharisees were a, a, an elite group. They were like SEAL Team 6, right, so of religion. They had to memorize the Torah. And Paul talks about and memorize the Torah. They had to have this qualification, this qualification. You just didn't uh, sign or you just didn't fill out an application to be a Pharisee. Uh, so you had to be brought into it. Um, and they prided themselves on their self-righteousness, their knowledge of the law, and they felt like they were guardians of the law. Jesus says, your righteousness needs to ex has to exceed their righteousness, and that's also impossible. So the only way that that is possible, the only way that we can be right in the eyes of God and be righteous is to have Christ's righteousness. Because only Jesus' righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, 
only Jesus' righteousness is perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Only Jesus' righteousness has fulfilled all the law. He kept all the commandments. Nobody else has done that. So that is another reason that Jesus had to become flesh so that he could obey the law, fulfill the law, and then later impute the righteousness which he gained uh, or which he had. Like I said, Jesus was always righteous. He didn't, he didn't um, gain righteousness. Righteousness was for him to lose, not to gain. Um, so it was also necessary to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies relating to his life, the ministry, and the sacrifice of uh, God's anointed in Isaiah 9-6. All right, so... That's the incarnation. That's God taking on flesh. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. Uh, now we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. Uh, scriptures are clear presenting the virgin birth. It is a miracle. It's a mystery. And the secret things belong to the Lord. It's taught without confusion. It cannot be spun to be symbolic or poetry, but it is literal. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And this is, uh, by the way, I meant to say, this is the 11th topic that we've covered with our biblical principles. Um, you can view the other 10 topics that we've been doing during Sunday school if you're uh, watching or listening to us. Uh, I think I started it maybe a year ago. You may have to find the first five. <laughs> uh, this is something we've just picked back up. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord by the prophet saying Behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Something that's interesting that, that was happening in the culture is, you know, Joseph couldn't just have a chat with Mary about these things. Uh, you know, they had chaperones before marriage. You know, they were betrothed and they, they, they could not spend time with each other, especially speaking about this topic. But it is interesting, the angel went to Mary separately and then went to Joseph separately. And so in this culture, you just did not have, you know, Joseph and Mary having a chat about why she's pregnant. Uh, but I, I thought that was interesting how the Lord had supplied 
whatever that need was of understanding. And the Lord will supply us with understanding even when it's, it's hard for us to get together or hard for us to know. Um, I mean, how, many, how much mis... The Lord wasn't going to let this be a misunderstanding <laughs> at all. But um, the supernatural birth of Jesus is stated there. It's stated in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, we, we had just read that. The virgin birth was miraculous because the body of Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost. It's also necessary that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he did not have a biological father. Uh, John Murray said this, the blood of Jesus is uh, the blood of Jesus is, is blood that has the requisite efficacy and virtue to perfect all those who are sanctified. It was necessary for our redemption. It was necessary if Christ would have had an earthly father who had conceived him, he would have been tainted by the sin nature that all of us have. Uh, the virgin birth also ensured that Jesus Christ was free from the defilement of Adam's sin. Now, the birth date. The Bible, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more here in a minute, but the Bible does not give us the exact date and year of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We know that uh, a star had appeared. We know that it was prophesied. Uh, but a close examination of the chronological details of history help us to narrow it down to at least a window of time. We absolutely do know, well, see, that's the thing. It doesn't specifically give us the date, but we can uh, surmise, we can uh, venture a, an educated guess of when Jesus was born around the time frame. It definitely was not in December. It was not December 25th because the scriptures tell us that there were shepherds and there were sheep out in the field. You don't have sheep in the field in December. The, the sheep are put up, they're winterized at near October, the beginning of October. So anywhere between spring and no later than October was Jesus born. Uh, it may, I think some think that it was in September. But here's the thing is, obviously the Bible is not giving us great emphasis on knowing that. Uh, because, you know, the Bible emphasizes more, of course, the supernatural birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus is very important. But the Bible emphasizes the cross of Christ more than the manger. Uh, it was necessary that Jesus was incarnated. It was necessary that the Word became flesh. It was necessary that Jesus had both natures. It was necessary that Jesus did not sin and that he was born. It was necessary to fulfill prophecy. And like we had just mentioned, all the reasons why the incarnation and the uh, hypostatic union, the, nat the two natures, the deity and the humanity of Christ, why those things were necessary, but the emphasis from the scriptures is that he has come to save us from our sins. That's why he came. The emphasis is on, on why he came, not how he came. Why he came, 
to save us, to reconcile us to God. It is God's solution to bringing, him, uh, bringing sinners back to him. And that is the reason Jesus came. And so it was necessary for redemption. The virgin birth was necessary. Not only he was not imputed Adam's guilt, uh, he was an, an imputed guilt is a charge, it's a federal charge. He was not born in Adam, like all of us are born in Adam, with Adam as our federal head. Uh, we were not, he was not biologically born of the Father in receiving the inheritance of the corrupt sin nature. So all these things, he had to be the perfect lamb, spotless lamb of God, because he was born to be God's sacrifice. He wasn't born to be a good teacher. He wasn't born to be a good example. He was born to be God's lamb for sacrifice to save us from our sins. And so he had to be spotless. So it's very important that Jesus, I mean, if you deny the virgin birth or you start getting into, be careful about getting into textual criticisms and, and watching uh, the History Channel and saying, watching these PhDs and all of these people get up and they say, well, you know, it, it's not possible because what they want to do is they get so smart they want to start denying miracles. They want to figure out naturally what may have happened. And so they start denying all the miracles. And wishing to become wise, what do they become? Fools. When you start denying the miracles, then you start denying the word of God. You start denying the faith. And if your faith is based on things you can prove, that is not the faith that God requires in him. Faith is believing without saying. That's what Jesus told Thomas. Hey, you, you have a great advantage, Thomas. You're, you're actually holding my hands. You're seeing me in the flesh. Blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe and love the Lord just as much as Thomas did. I mean, that's something. That's special. So uh, going back to his birthday, uh, we know that Jesus was not born on December 25th uh, just because of the time of season. It, again, it's not emphasized in the word of God that this is a fact we need to know. Um, we do um, cherish, and it, it is in the word of God, and we love the doctrine, and it's an important doctrine. The, the incarnation, the birth of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his two natures are essential doctrines of the faith. They're foundational. Okay, so we don't we 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 do celebrate those things, but we can celebrate them any day of the year, any time of the year. I mean, and that is the same thing with all of the scriptures. Boy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And when we remember what Jesus' primary mission was, we can celebrate that all the time, uh, anytime. And so, um, but that is uh, basically the biblical principles. We, we have talked a lot about the deity of Jesus Christ in our John series, and we're going to keep talking about that um, real fast. I want to talk about just briefly, uh, not go into a lot of detail because um, honestly, I, I want to talk about some of these other world religions, who they believe Jesus is. And I don't want to go into all of the heretical, just crazy stuff that's out there because honestly, I don't even, 
I don't like to say it in the Lord's church. I, I, I just don't want to, uh, you know, the emphasis to us should be to become so familiar with the truth that you can spot counterfeit yourself. I don't have to tell you what's counterfeit. You know it. The only way to know counterfeit is to become so um, saturated with what's real, you can instantly spot what's not real. Uh, that was one of the things. I, I had never, and I don't, it's not my conviction to go out and learn every detail about every false religion. I don't have to. What I want to do is learn every detail about the truth. And that's, then I won't have to worry about what's false. But anyway, uh, what is startling to us is how many billions of people live on this planet who have these views. Islam. Islam has two billion people and it's 25% of the world's population. Christianity is number one. Um, whatever term Christianity comes in, we know that not all Christians are saved or who call themselves Christian. There's a lot of things under the umbrella of Christianity. Um, the Islamic faith believes that Jesus was a prophet and they actually hold Jesus up in high regard, but they believe that uh, Muhammad was the last prophet of God. And so they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe in the resurrection. Muslims think that we are polytheistic. They think that we worship more than one God. We have more than one God because we believe the Trinity. The Bible teaches the Trinity. Uh, I had a friend who was Muslim at work. It was a coworker, And I had to continually correct him on, no, I'm not polytheistic. Uh, the Lord our God, he is one Lord. And, but he is in three natures, distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential. Uh, and, and he is those three natures all in one, but he's one God. Uh, we don't completely fathom, we can't completely understand all those things, but that is what the scripture teaches, so that's what I believe. And, uh, so Islam acknowledges that Jesus ascended into heaven in bodily form, uh, but they deny that Jesus was crucified or that he died on the cross. And actually, uh, Mount Moriah, they believe that it was Ishmael that Abraham took up to Mount Moriah, not Isaac. And that's why they have that uh, dome of the Temple Mount. That's why they have hallowed that area, uh, because that's where, that's where Mount Moriah is. And they believe that's where Abraham had brought up Ishmael not Isaac. They claim Abraham to be their father. That's the one thing that they have in common with Judaism um, is that they are the descendants of Ishmael. And um, that's Islam. Hinduism is 1.2 billion people and that is 15%. That comes out of India. That's where you hear the word karma, reincarnation. According to Gandhi, a man may not believe in God and still be called a Hindu. And that's something, isn't it? A man doesn't have to believe in God at all just to be called a Hindu. So they're big into philosophy, spiritualism. Uh, they believe that Jesus was a wise teacher and that Jesus was a God, not the God. Um, Hindus will worship many gods and goddesses, and they want to add Jesus to that list of deity. 
Now, similar, now Hinduism is one of the, a very old religion in India. 1.2 billion people on this planet uh, observe Hinduism. And the other is Buddhism. That's 506 million, 6%. They, they also are in reincarnation and karma, but they follow the text uh, from the man, they call him the Buddha. They believe Jesus was an enlightened man and he was a wise teacher, but that was it. Now this new age movement. Now you all may be, uh, you all may see this a little bit more. This was originated in the 1970s, right around Woodstock and all that. This new age movement is more about agnosticism, which means that if there is a God, it's unknowable. They are more into astrology. Um, is it that late? It, it is a range of spiritual or religious practice and beliefs which rapidly grow in Western society during the 1970s. Once I say this, I'm done. But I, I want you to listen to some of these things, this New Age movement that's out there that originated in the 1970s. This range of spiritual or religious practices and beliefs which rapidly grew in the Western society, which is America, the Western Hemisphere, during the 1970s, Although many scholars consider it a religious movement, its adherents typically see it as a spiritual or as a unifying mind, body, spirit, humanism, ageism, rarely use the, the term itself. Their main views are this. Uh, spiritual ener energy can be located in physical things. They believe in psychics. They believe in reincarnation. And they believe in astrology. There is a big difference between astronomy and astrology. I, I like astronomy. Okay, and I believe I can be, I can love astronomy and not receive the Big Bang Theory or the, the origin of species. Astronomy is the study of the cosmos. Astrology is the religion of the cosmos. It's a, you're spiritualizing it. You're making the, uh, the cosmos part of your personality, and that's astrology. Uh, this movement believes that. They typically will ignore Jesus' teaching about his own identity, about his incarnation, his deity. Many revere Jesus' moral teaching, and some argue the ethics of Jesus are not those of the Christians who follow him. They, they point out the hypocrisy in Christians. These New Age believers particularly respect what they believe Jesus taught about peace and love of one's enemies, they focus on the hypocrisy of the rich and religious leaders and the rights of women and children. That group sounds kind of familiar. And 1970s. I won't go into the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, but um, I firmly believe and I've always been taught uh, not to invite those people in your house. Uh, they just bring another gospel that's damnable heresy. It's cultic. Uh, you know, uh, Methodists, there's people being saved at Methodist churches, but there's nobody being saved at these Jehovah Witnesses or Mormon uh, type of cult things. So um, those are the things that I didn't even want to disclose to you all. But let's have a word of prayer. And I, I went a little bit over. I apologize. Um, all right, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for... This day, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for your eternal promises and that you will not fail. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you're going to do. Father, may you be pleased 
And we thank you, Lord, for just being used in a small way in your plan. Father, we want to uplift those today who may be going through a hard time in the days to come. Father, we pray, Lord, you'll just strengthen them, bring them closer to you. Give them hope, encouragement, and a smile in their tears. And Father, we know that you talk to us so sweetly. You're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.